Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. Playing for Team Human today, the technology and economics critics behind Logic Magazine Moira Wagle and Ben Tarnoff. So this language of a certain kind of humanism is not a new solution to these problems that we're seeing, and indeed it's been used by the industry very effectively for decades. I think our position is that the common root of these problems is capitalism, and we want to figure out, okay, how do we decommodify and democratize more and more of our economy? Moira and Ben will be showing us how the tech industry's promise to build less harmful products and programs is just capitalism's way of proving that love means never having to say you're sorry. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. Maybe I don't say this enough, but Team Human is a mission of love. Uh, I don't get any money for it, and I don't plan to, but there are expenses, and it's been great to have a large community to uh, help pay them. Um, That includes um, some money for Stephen for all the hours he puts in, uh, engineering and producing the show, equipment, uh, getting guests to our studio or to a location in New York where we can interview them, uh, doing publicity. There's all sorts of uh, expenses that come with doing a podcast like this. And we don't do any uh, underwriting or advertising, so we are depending completely on our community. You can sign up to become a subscriber at patreon.com teamhuman or go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. 
Um, if you support us, you get in free to all Team Human events, including our next one, June 21st, at Alchemist's Kitchen with Somaspace founder Mark Filippi, uh, including the one in London on July 9th with cyberpunk queen Pat Cadigan and biologist Rupert Sheldrake. Um, you can also just come to those events uh, and pay uh, whatever the ticket price is at, to help support the venue for hosting us. Uh, details at teamhuman.fm. Just click on live events. We're expanding our radio footprint. We just joined uh, X-Ray in Portland, and we'll have some other radio stations joining the Team Human family soon. And we'll be expanding our fundraising and subscription offers. But understand that if you subscribe at whatever rate, a $10 a month rate, $15 a month, or $20 a month rate, you'll still get all the new things that we add to a subscription at that level. Um, so uh, whether it's uh, getting a, a tote bag or a copy of the Team Human book when it comes out in January or a signed copy of the Team Human book when it comes out in January, all those things will still go to people. It's not like you have to wait to subscribe to get those. Um, and I'm looking for more opportunities and things uh, to share with the Team Human regular subscribers um, all the time. So there'll be uh, more things coming. Uh, for now, Please subscribe at any level, support this work, the people who make it, and tell everyone that humanity now has an official team. This has been a crazy week for news. The recent meeting of the G7 nations and Donald Trump's willingness to get into a trade war with Canada and our other former best friends deserves a bit of unpacking. I've been finding myself in the role of Trump whisperer lately, or maybe more accurately, Trump translator. So let me try to explain what's going on here, because there's useful lessons in it for us. Basically, the G7 is a group of friendly nations, the United States, Germany, Canada, Japan, Italy, and the UK, who discuss everything from the environment to the economy. Now, normally, progressives are suspicious of the G7 because it represents the open global market, the neoliberalism that tends to support the largest corporate players and turn the world into one big bank. It's not quite the World Trade Organization, the WTO meetings that led to the first Occupy-era protests in Seattle in 1999, but a big blue marble economy that doesn't fully recognize the importance of local economies and cottage industries. So for Trump to poo-poo the whole thing based on his America First slogan should actually resonate with those of us who are suspicious of unfettered global trade and who want some sort of boundary conditions to protect local economies. But to get into a trade or tariff war with the remaining democratic nations of our planet is misguided or coming from another place. Trump's advisors, they've been telling the press that Trump had to be aggressive and mean at the G7 in order to show North Korea that he's strong in advance of their meeting. But if Trump's economic relations with Europe are at the mercy of the illusion he wants to project to Kim Jong-il, then how is that a sign of strength? Sorry, but I have to beat up my friend in order to prove to that other guy that I'm strong? 
Strength would be going about your business and continuing to do what's best for the economy, no matter how that may look to North Korea. But North Korea is, in Trump's scheme, more powerful than the United States. North Korea is so important that we must surrender our economic future in order to impress them. Wow. But to the matter of the tariffs themselves, there are really two kinds of tariffs. There's tariffs meant to level the playing field between trading partners of different sizes and strengths in order to promote trade and the health of everyone. It's like a handicap in golf. It's a basic principle of economics, Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage, that it's better to trade with other countries and let them provide the goods or services that they're comparatively better at doing. If Italy grows grapes more easily than England, then England should buy wine from them. Tariffs can help level the playing field between a giant, powerful economy and a smaller one. And we'll get back to that. But tariffs can also be implemented punitively as part of a trade war. You're going to tax my wheat? Screw you. I'm going to tax your steel. That's not about promoting everyone's interests, but trying to undermine international trade and instead make it more like the rough-and-tumble world of business. Cutthroat, undependable, risky, and every man for himself. No other country can be a friend because we're all in competition. Even business partners in Trump's history don't get paid what they're owed. It's, it's why no lawyers wanted to work for him. So the G7 tried to explain to Trump how the first sorts of tariffs promote trade and begged him not to resort to the punitive tariffs. Yes, they may help some short-term domestic agenda. Adding tariffs to steel or cars imported from Canada makes it harder for our corporations to put factories overseas. So in theory, that would lead to more employment of U.S. auto workers. But it doesn't work that way. The cars will still be made in Canada but it's going to cost the poor and the factories. This will be their tax burden in the form of higher prices on steel and cars to pay the tariffs. You have to pay the tariffs. It's not the other country that pays the tariffs. It's us. It's our consumers, our people. This is how Trump pays for his tax plan, the one that cuts taxes on the wealthy and already pays for it through the defunding of programs that benefit the poor. Trump's voters end up paying. The point of tariffs is supposed to be to make trade doable for smaller countries. It allows for that level playing field. Now, on that level playing field, sometimes a country is going to do better, but the way to counter that is through business competition. In an entirely open market, power laws take effect, and we get all those winner-takes-all outcomes. A few super-rich ones at the top, and everybody else poor at the bottom. That's the bigger problem that we're dealing with today. Regulations make for sustainability and distributed prosperity. It's not some affront to nature, but the incorporation of nature's negative feedback loops, the ones that tell us to slow down rather than just the positive ones. A negative feedback loop is like that click you hear in the thermostat. When the house is cool enough, it clicks, it turns the air conditioner off so you don't keep using so much electricity. Positive feedback loops, like population growth, which reduces resources and then encourages people to have more kids because fewer of them survive into adulthood, they're often destructive. Positive feedback loops are the way that big corporations use their giant profits to pay for policies that allow them to make more profit. They lead to runaway growth, not some equilibrium, but infinite expansion. 
The negative ones create the means for regulation and calibration. They do it by increasing circulation, like lowering blood pressure by dilating your vessels instead of impeding anything. The same is true for technology. Unbridled development with no negative feedback loops, no human intervention, that makes it the perfect dancing party for the deregulated marketplace. Facebook and Google. And the results have been an assault on our senses and our society. There's been some movement from within the technology industry to regulate themselves. The Center for Humane Technology, for example, and efforts at Google and Facebook to be less awful. But is their focus on a less manipulated user experience enough? Answering that question and more, the pair of radical intellectuals behind Logic Magazine, Moira Wagel and Ben Tarnoff, their recent piece for The Guardian, Why Silicon Valley Can't Fix Itself, shows how the effort to develop less harmful, more supposedly humane technology is just another way to make Silicon Valley more powerful. Damien Williams, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Eleanor Seta, and I'm on Team Human. My name is JT Rogers, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Molly Wright Steenson, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Jason Louvre, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guests today, Maura Wagle and Ben Tarnoff of Logic Magazine. So here we are at Personal Democracy Forum. What, what called you both to my immediate attention. It was like a reward to read your piece in The Guardian about Center for Humane Technology. So I've known Tristan since I wrote this book called Present Shock, which was looking at the impact of digital technology on our awareness and our consciousness. Even before, in 1999, I wrote a book called Coercion, very afraid that the techniques of advertising were going to migrate into interactive spaces, and then we'd have technologies that could reconfigure themselves based on what they learn about us and get better and better, and then the traditional arms race between us and Madison Avenue would now be between us and algorithms, and there'd be no way for us to keep up. So I wrote all this stuff, and then Tristan came to me saying, look, I'm one of these guys that made this stuff, that took these classes with uh, at Stanford with uh, a B.J. Fogg in Captology, and we invented things like streaks and colors and buttons and took Las Vegas slot machine knowledge and used it against innocent people and all that, and I feel terrible, and we're going to change it. Yay, right? We should say yay, but then there was something that rubbed me the wrong way about it the whole time. That and and Tim O'Reilly's logic of, look, we'll just make a softer, kinder capitalism. So we'll still have a startup culture, but we'll let people vest over four years instead of two, or somehow make it all better. And then I saw your piece about largely technologists trying to fix what they've messed up, but using technology to do it, almost unaware of the bigger context. And I felt, oh my gosh, these misgivings I'm having aren't just weird personal jealousy that somebody else is now hawking the the, the pers- anti-persuasive technology meme, but there's something 
fundamentally wrong in this approach? And I'm wondering if you can, for, for me and our listeners, kind of articulate what is wrong with the let's just make these technologies more humane mm-hmm. idea. Yeah, I mean, I think at risk of being the academic, I always want to turn the question around and say, well, what do we mean by humane? And like, what's at stake in the way that we're thinking about the human and the humane? And I think that that can be a useful category for thinking about how we interact with technologies. But the reality is that to presuppose that, you know, we can't presuppose what it means to be humane and have a human interaction with technology. And all through the history of technology, we see this people freaking out about the railroad or about cinema or about different kinds of network and, uh, and media technologies. So what am I saying? I think that... That, that we have to define the human to know what's at risk? Yeah, and that we have, anyway, I think maybe that's, that's a first starting point. Or when I first started to see this language of humanism around technology as someone who's thought a lot about the history of philosophical debates about the human in the 20th century, I sort of was like, huh, but well, what is that, the human? What are we talking about? And then I think, to another point that's a big theme of Logic, our magazine, and a big theme of both of our work in different ways, I think And the magazine is? Logic, it's a magazine about technology, was that, This is a framing that makes it about individual health and personal behavior and not at all about political economy and that it's really hard Mm. to think clearly about how these tools are designed, how they function if we don't acknowledge the reality that they are situated within a certain moment in platform capitalism or digital capitalism and that it's all good and well to like charge your cell phone outside your bedroom. I think it's probably a good idea, you know, or to use grayscale or whatever, but this is not the fundamental problem that we're seeing with these technologies, or rather these methods don't speak to the sort of fundamental problems that have emerged in the past six months or year of tech backlash. Do you want to jump onto that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that was really our core critique is that these tech humanists really centered on the Center for Humane Technology, but also present in other places, are putting forward a a particular way to respond to the tech backlash that we've been seeing growing. And our fear is not only that that response is insufficient, but that in fact it could be useful to the tech companies to domesticating that backlash. That That by channeling popular anger around many of the scandals we've seen around Silicon Valley into questions of health and humanity, These are ways, in our view, to depoliticize and personalize these issues and could also, in a a way that we explore later in the piece, could could also be a profit-making engine for these tech companies as they think about the quality of data over the quantity of data. And I think if I can just add one thing I forgot to say, I think another thing that was quite striking to us following the press around the sort of tech humanism movement and moment was that this language is not new. I mean, Nicholas Negroponte is speaking this language in the 60s or the 70s, I guess by the 80s, the MIT Media Labs created in the 80s. So, you know, these different phases at MIT. So this language of a certain kind of humanism is not a new solution to these problems that we're seeing. And indeed, it's been used by the industry very effectively for decades to promote this image of the tech industry as sort of being, you know, its interests are aligned with the interests of humanity as a whole. So anyway, I think that we also wanted to foreground that and think about the history of like work that that term has done for the tech industry. Yeah, I mean, there's two main threads I kind of want to talk about that you're bringing up. I mean, one is that all this digital technology is happening in the context 
of capitalism. So it's not like digital technology is the problem as much as capitalism expressing itself through digital technology is a whole other thing. And not to say that the technology is neutral, it has, doesn't have biases, but we're, it's almost as if they're ignoring that the, the underlying assumptions that, well, tech companies have to make money, and they're going to have to grow, and they're going to have to support the stock market, that's all a given. So it's like, okay, so now Apple's going to now make its money and expand by protecting users from something. So I see there's, there's that, and then there's this other almost uh, uh, more historical thread of this moment when the technologies of war and encryption, all this computing stuff, got kind of repackaged in the 50s and 60s, and, and, and by well-meaning people, to say, well, look, let's take all that war budget that we were spending, and don't stop spending it, because this stuff is going to give us new memory and new abilities. It's going to save the economy and let everything keep growing. And then the t time when I came in on this, in the late 80s and early 90s, Stuart Brand, who's got better credentials than that? The, he was on the bus with the merry pranksters. He took more acid than I've seen. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? And this is the guy saying, it's okay, kids. It's safe. Come in. This is the whole earth. This is the well. This is, this is Esalen. This is the human evolution forward. And Apple came along really riding on that sense of digital as the counterculture's expression. And somehow, were we wrong? Did it change? Was there something that we were blinded by? I think that history was really important to us in thinking about this. And as Maura mentioned, the fact that this language of tech humanism is often being presented by its proponents and by the media as oppositional to Silicon Valley is very ahistorical, right? As you're pointing out, the language of the need to humanize computing was completely present throughout the 60s and 70s and, in, in fact, is responsible for building Silicon Valley as we know it today. Human augmented whatever, but Engelbart and all those demos were Absolutely. all about human augmentation. Totally. And, and Stuart Brand and, and the birth of personal computing in the 70s that move away from the kind of big mainframe model. Mm -hmm. So for us to see the language of humanism being invoked again, it suggests that this is a part of a toolkit that the industry uses to respond to crisis, to manage crisis, and also to find a new engine of capital accumulation, which is why we're particularly curious about how the language of tech humanism is used, not just as a shield, or just not just as a way to kind of depoliticize or diffuse the tech backlash, but also possibly to find a new business model beyond the kind of purely adding more time, adding more engagement to the platform. Well, and Tim Cook is, is as much as saying, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, is saying that. This is our business model, is to protect the user from all this stuff that Google and others would do to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. The only thing I'd add, I mean, it's part of, I think, what is vexing to me about the sort of human framework is how depoliticizing it is. And the great expert on this, who I'm just citing his work is Fred Turner on, you know, his book Counterculture to Cyberculture really tells this story, but how a certain 60s communitarian model that was very influential in the formation of Silicon Valley is fundamentally pretty apolitical and anti-political in how it thinks about its project. And in the absence of institutions to facilitate community deliberation or certain kinds of institutions, this sort of, this new communitarianism or new communalism as he calls it, often ends up reproducing very 
white male, you know, you get charismatic, um, authoritative figures who are from groups who are already privileged. And I feel like the sort of Stuart Brand model. And again, I'm not interested in saying like Stuart Brand's a jerk. You know, that's not no. the point. But it's like in the absence of the infrastructure for democratic deliberation and for creating, I don't know, opportunities for political participation and negotiation, this kind of communalist model that uh, was very influential upon early Silicon Valley doesn't necessarily bring us great politics. And I think that the human, this idea of like an abstract human that is not interrogated is a big part of that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to, to the historical point, for those of us who were there at the time, and I was mainly a kid listening, but I still had a brain, I bought the idea that punk rock failed, right? Because it was so... Uh, it was like reaction formation and it was political and all that. And the idea was that in this kind of post Fritzhoff Capra dancing wooly masters holistic Zen internet future that we wouldn't get trapped in the in Marxism. We wouldn't get stuck in the seriousness of issues because we would just be like embracing the pure, you know, the pure light, just follow the bliss of the, the fun of it. And I think what we didn't realize was, was there's no, you can't escape that. You know, unless you're a, a, really a, a rich white kid in a bubble, you know, a, in a bubble of a beautiful MDMA rave in Oakland, you know, once you step in the world, there is, there's politics. We didn't even realize that reclaiming public space in the name of a rave was a political act. Totally. And it's interesting to think of how dominant that rhetoric that you're describing has been for so long. And I feel like it's really only since 2016 and the 2016 election mm -hmm. that it's begun to unravel. Like that 90s kind of techno-utopian rhetoric, I think of John Perry Barlow, the idea of the internet as a separate place, a place of great personal freedom, as a frontier. Yeah, frontier. I mean, it's super racialized. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. <laughs> and of course, there have been people sounding the alarm about that, people who have been critiquing it in various forms. But we haven't really had kind of popular conversation pointing out that actually maybe this rhetoric is totally misguided and also maybe the reality that it purports to describe is actually totally out of whack, right? I mean, the internet is not a place of enormous democracy and decentralization. It's dominated by a few big platforms. It's dominated at this point by a few big telecoms who own the pipes. So I think there's been let's say, a realignment where people are realizing that the rhetoric was so far out of whack with the reality and now we're trying to adjust. This is funny. It's like how did a set of control protocols developed by the military become a metaphor or sort of become conflated with a site of complete freedom? It's an interesting question. I feel like I just want to say we don't feel totally hostile, I don't anyway, to that, to some of those countercultural energies. And it may also be that that moment when you were the kid at the rave, we're like in a different historical moment now and that that rhetoric some of it anyway, did do certain kinds of like culturally emancipatory work or oppositional work that, you know, frankly, a lot of that oppositionality has been absorbed in an era of personalization. You know, Facebook doesn't care which one of 50 genders you have. It's not disruptive to their business model. I don't know. Various kinds of behaviors that might have seemed radical and oppositional at an earlier historical moment seem to have been pretty well absorbed. So maybe I still feel some affection for the kids at the rave. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that, I mean, and, and yeah, it was a context. And it was, I mean, just like you're not going to say, oh, look at the people at Andy Warhol's factory. Look how screwed... It was a moment, and they did accomplish something. Yes, it was a vacuum, but we don't have to slam them all, you know. I think about how brilliant they were all, like how prescient that was. they were all the time. <laughs> the social right. factory. 
they figured it out. You know, they really did before before we got here. But then people I know at the largest companies would say that, well, yeah, you look at it like we're co-opting your political ideas and creating pro and productizing the revolution. We look at it that we're being influenced by your great countercultural and political ideas and look at how great capitalism and, and bourgeois values uh, assimilate the perspectives of, of all comers. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's like the like, worker posters, aren't there Cesar Chavez posters up at Facebook right now? Or like, where are the posters? That's right, progressive yeah. neoliberalism. It, um. yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think that rhetoric has been tested very, very intensely, right, in the past year or so, where I think for so long the rhetoric was we can make a lot of money and make the world a better place, kind of what you're describing. Mm -hmm. And now with just kind of scandal after another, the Cambridge Analytica stuff, the fake news stuff, I mean, it's been a pretty difficult season for Silicon Valley. And the possibility that maybe the profit motive is not aligned with the best interests of humanity is, is starting to seep in, I think, in, in a lot of these places. And I think the, the point where, where we really like to emphasize is that the tech workers, the rank and file at a lot of these companies are very aware of that conflict. And they're doing a lot of really interesting organizing work within these companies to try to build better technologies, even though management wants to make more money. And I think that moment, the moment I always come back to is, is December 9th, 2016, when all the tech CEOs went to Trump Tower. And I think that moment brought about a really acute identity crisis for a lot of folks we know in the industry. You know, some of my best husbands work in the tech industry. <laughs> we have lots of good friends in the tech industry. And I think that they go in with good intentions, and a lot of them really bought into these kinds of ideas that you're describing, that these companies will make the world a better place and are, you know, will serve diversity and serve all these different values that they hold dear in that moment of watching, you know, Sheryl Sandberg and Tim Cook and everyone go talk to Trump was a very disillusioning moment for a lot of people. And I feel like seeing that has created some really interesting political possibilities because I think, you know, the vast majority of people who work at these companies are good people and, you know, want to um, have gone in with good intentions and because they believe that this was true, that the work they would do there would make the world a better place. So I think that, yeah, we're in this interesting transitional moment where something that felt like an old common sense is, like, cracking. And I feel like a lot of the work we're doing in our own writing and at Logic is trying to, like, figure out what's a new kind of common sense that can follow. Yeah, I remember talking to the uh, some of the workers I knew who were on Google buses that got protested and the one in Oakland that people threw rocks at. And those kids, I can't them kids now. Oh, my God, I guess I'm old. Those kids were, were traumatized and upset. It was like, we're just going to work, trying to do a good job and trying to come up with something that's going to help our users do stuff. And I work on uh, uh, Google Docs. And do you know how many people have gotten you know, to start businesses and work and not have to buy a product. And I mean, it's not, and that's why I argued in, in my book, it's not them. They're not the problem. In some ways, they're the solution. I've walked around Google and I see my own little anti-Google books on their, on their shelves. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. And then we get to, um, well, just last week, you wrote about it or you interviewed a secret spy. But um, the so Google uh, was going to do a deal with the government to do AI analysis of spy satellites. And the Google employees freaked out, right? Exactly. So this was something called Project Maven, which is a 
Pentagon program to use machine learning to analyze drone surveillance footage to improve targeting for drone strikes. Oh, so Project Maven, this is so funny. So Project Maven was the was the government's name. I thought Project I thought Project Maven was the Google employee's name for their counter operation. Oh, I love it that. Sounds so that sounds hardcore, doesn't it? Definitely. Project no. Their other their other surveillance thing that was being disputed was called Project Jedi. Well, Jedi is actually another thing we, which which we could talk about, which is the Pentagon's next generation cloud AI system that they're asking various big cloud providers to bid on, which is going to be a, probably a ten billion dollar contract. But in any case, Project Maven, yeah, this was an extraordinary moment within Google where a lot of Google workers organized to demand that Google cancel this contract. A lot of concerns about how AI was going to be used to kill people all around the world. Uh, They launched an internal petition, a letter to the CEO, um, organized a number of initiatives to put pressure on management. And we're successful. So, so Google management has recently announced that they will not renew the Maven contract when it expires in March 2019. And they used all sorts of little Google techniques to do that. Like like a, <laughs> yeah, so they really they showed a lot of creativity in leveraging all of these kind of internal Google tools. So Google has a fairly robust internal culture of kind of discussion and debate. Um, so they really use those channels very effectively. Discussion list, the internal social media platform, this tool called Meme Gen, which is an employee meme generator, which apparently they use quite a lot to kind of uh, push their cause. So it's an extraordinary moment, and I'm very excited to see where it goes from here. Because as as the worker I interviewed said, there's a lot of potential power here for tech workers within these companies. These people care about the consequences of the technologies they're building. And that puts them often in direct conflict with management because the profit motive on the one hand versus serving the needs of the users and social values more generally, that's a real opposition. I mean, there's a lot of money on the table for military work. So I expect a lot more of these conflicts in the future. I know. It was interesting because in the, in the 90s, I used to go and try to argue to programmers that they have the power. If you know C++, your boss doesn't. You're the ones. And they always say, oh, well, they'll just get someone else. They'll get someone else. I have to do this. I have to do algorithms for Goldman Sachs. I have to do military things. And it's as if in this moment, it feels like the programmers realized, oh, wait a minute. I mean, and a positive power. I mean, programmers realized they had power when they invented, you know, cryptocurrency and thought, oh, well, why don't we be the bankers instead of the bankers? And they recreate the same damn stupid thing. But you know what I mean? But nerds in charge. But that's, I mean, that's my own, I mean, people hate when I say that because they think they still kind of buy the rhetoric around blockchain as this liberative thing when I kind of see it as there's only one way it can develop. And that's what sort of these weird uh, uh, first mover advantage pyramid scheme problems. But with with digital technology, too, the programmers never saw themselves, really not since the dot-com boom and bust, they never saw themselves as the, as the power. And it's partly because venture capital refused to come back unless they could call the shots. You know, after 2000, they were, they've mm-hmm. been in charge. But now there's this little, I mean, are you optimistic that this is a, this was a watershed moment? This is the first time I can remember seeing programmer employees saying, no, we will not code that. I think it is. I mean, I feel like we've seen a lot of interesting activity. There's this group called Tech Workers Coalition that we've both written about, I've written about, we've interviewed members of it in Logic. Uh, 
who's done organizing around a lot of different initiatives, and some of them were instrumental in helping getting some of the blue-collar workers at Facebook unionized last spring and summer. Um, and they, I think that that's been a really educational experience for a lot of them and a very exciting experience. I'm fascinated by Tech Workers Coalition because it was co-founded by an engineer and a cafeteria worker. So it's like this really interesting mix of blue-collar and white-collar labor. Um, but... I think that this is a really interesting watershed and those employees are feeling some of their power. Uh, and they really, it, you know, this idea that if we don't do it, someone else will or someone else can be hired. There's something to that. But a really good engineer is hard to replace and really expensive to replace. And that does give programmers a lot of leverage in certain situations. And I think it's leverage they can use to maybe make their work closer to the ideals they had in mind when they went to work in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of radicalizing potential in the gap between the rhetoric and the reality of Silicon Valley, right? I think a lot of outsiders look at making the world a better place and think, that's ridiculous. <laughs> like, you have to be a moron to believe that, <laughs> right? But the reality is that a lot of people believe that, and you shouldn't judge them for believing it. You should see it as an opportunity, because if they really believe that they want to make the world a better place, and you show them that they're not making the world a better place, that the company they work for is not making the world a better place. And in fact, it's structured to make the world a worse place. That is very radicalizing. Like it's that gap between reality and rhetoric that historically has triggered revolutions. That's how we got the Haitian revolution. <laughs> like this is the tradition of imminent critique that Marx embodies where you don't stand outside a system and say, I wish it looked more like this. You enter into the system. You try to understand its contradictions, right? Try to understand the gap between how it describes itself, how it thinks about itself and what it really is. And I think the media in general has really underappreciated, I don't know, has sort of missed this story sometimes just because we mostly only hear from CEOs and VCs. It's like relatively rare that you hear from rank and file tech workers in press stories and with good reason. You have to sign an NDA to go into any of the buildings. You know, it's hard to uh, get them to talk about their work. But I think that there is a reality on the ground that's a little bit different, that's quite different from this impression one might be forgiven for having if you'd only ever read the New York Times about it, that everyone in Silicon Valley is like a Peter Thiel libertarian or something, that there are really a lot of people in the industry with different ideas and priorities to that, even if they're not as publicly visible or haven't been. In some ways, though, the revolt is libertarian style. In other words, they're saying, look, there's a market for programmers we are that product, and now we're not going to... And there's, in some ways, I feel like the, some of the protesters probably have a libertarian outlook and thinking that we can, we can steer this, not because we're Marxists, but because, although they are working in solidarity. I mean, that's they the use, other thing. They, a lot of them identify explicitly as socialists and use the language of socialist yeah. analysis. But I'm sure they're formed by the sort of... A lot of them also came up through a more libertarian socialist kind of worldview. I, I would disagree. I think that libertarianism has pockets of support among the rank and file. It's certainly well represented at the top in the leadership yeah. class, but I don't think libertarianism is actually a very active component of rank and file tech worker politics. My sense is that broadly most tech workers, if we're talking about the kind of big elite firm, Silicon Valley tech, we're talking mostly people who would be, I would say casual liberals, kind of like broadly liberal, um, pockets of libertarianism, pockets of something a bit uglier, a bit alt-right, and pockets, and I think a small but, let's say, significant social democratic current. A lot of tech workers voted for Bernie. They donated heavily to his campaign. Uh, 
a subset of that have become active in socialist organizations, uh, tech but workers coalition. The largest, you wrote about that, but the largest number of donations to Bernie's campaign after the nurses union came from like Apple and Amazon. And yeah, if you look at the employers of the top Bernie campaign contributors, you'll find tech companies, right? So I think in the top five, it was Google, Amazon, Facebook, right? So again, that clashes a bit with the media narrative. So these pockets exist. I, I would say what Mora said is that the people who are organizing this campaign within Maven, for them, their orientation is labor, the labor movement. They talk about the teacher strikes happening right now. That's where they're really drawing inspiration. I think another thing, just to add as a footnote, I think that inequality and unaffordability in the Bay Area have become so grotesque that even really privileged workers see it as a problem. I feel like we did interviews. Logic published a book last year called Tech Against Trump, and we interviewed a bunch of different sort of activist tech workers in connection with it. And I feel like four or five different people independently said some version of, you know, I came here and I'd majored in CS and maybe I have a master's degree and I got a job at a tech company. And like, I'm actually struggling to make rent and I'm the luckiest one. You know, I'm the luckiest one. And it's like, I see all these people on the street in Soma or, you know, on my way to Twitter headquarters, I see people, it looks like the third world. Um, and I think that there's also something sort of specific about what's happening in the Bay Area that is radicalizing people. Right, I'm a programmer, and I still can't afford to live in San Francisco. Yeah. So who is? And what? that makes him sound like jerks. I don't mean to make. I mean, they no, know they're I, really lucky. Yeah, um, but it's but still, yeah. they're at least I'm the one. I'm the one who's supposed to be gentrifying this place, yeah. and I'm. I can't even afford it. So yeah. what's what's going on here? I went to work at this startup and then all our friends got laid off. You know, I think also the specific labor dynamics of the startup um, has sort of, how to put it, given people a crash course in like the harsh realities of contemporary capitalism sometimes right. when they didn't expect it. And what's the average uh, 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 sustainability of a Google worker? It's like four or five years and then they burn out or need special therapies and shock treatment and God knows what to, you know, it's a hard, it's a hard life. I mean, the, the, the other thing I want to talk about with both of you, and it's, it, it sounds more abstract, but I don't mean it that way, is, is back to this idea of uh, kind of appropriate and, and inappropriate humanism. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, this is a show, it's called Team Human. I'm mm -hmm. trying to retrieve the human. Mm -hmm. And I, I always trace it back, and this reveals my hippie roots also, to the, the day that Netscape went public mm -hmm. was also the day that Jerry Garcia died. Uh -huh. And I felt like that was when <laughs> so the internet kind of left the 60s values behind and became this money thing. It was like, okay, we don't care about the dead. We care about Wall Street. And it was a, it was a shift. And I've always thought of trying to re – retrieving the human means retrieving solidarity. In other words, the, the West Coast kind of made its mistake, and we can look at, you know, Century of the Self and Adam Curtis stuff and, and see it, by, by – striving towards individualism and, and Maslow's hierarchy of needs ending up in self-actualization and this sort of most renaissance era understanding of the the enlightened human as the you know Vitruvian man, you know, this single individual. And that if we're gonna be human now, we've got to understand humanity as a team sport, you know, or evolution as this social phenomenon, not a competitive individual one. But I don't know that I've really worked on what it what is the human in team human what and how important is it to figure that out and where how do we even where do we go for that 
Yeah, it's funny because I wrote my dissertation on sort of post-humanism and media theory. So this is like hard for me to even zero in on where to begin. Two things in response to what you're saying. I think I absolutely feel that sort of emancipatory potential of the idea of the human as an idea about solidarity. And I think that a thing I sometimes think is that, you know, the human is a useful horizon of aspiration. We have never been humanist enough. You know, that's kind of the problem with the human is not something or humanism is not something we can presuppose as a category. It's sort of like a horizon towards which we must strive. And I think another thing about this whole discourse about humane technology is often the human is described as either explicitly or implicitly in opposition to the technology, like the human is this thing that now the cell phone is encroaching upon. And I always, I may be playing a little fast and loose with evolutionary biology, but I believe, you know, we become, our ancestors become recognizably human when they start making tools. Like the human has always co-evolved with its tools. Uh, and for that reason, I'm more drawn to traditions of thought that think about the human as evolving, uh, you know, as cyborg. In terms of Donna Haraway, we were thinking a lot, I think it didn't end up in our piece, but about sort of Afrofuturist traditions of trying to imagine um, what did it- You talk about Donna Haraway, though. Yeah, and I think- this, 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 that, And the idea that we are co-evolving with these technologies, that we are, we are a techno technologized species, so that yeah. humane as some, draw, as some retreat back to yeah. something else, is, is silly. I mean, what, what moment of human evolution are we preserving? Right. And I think that's why it often feels like a conservative impulse, the sort of appeal to the human if one isn't interrogating what it is, like what which human or when. And I think that the importance of the Afrofuturist tradition, the cyborg sort of feminist tradition, too, is like most members of the human species have not been treated as human historically, have been treated as less than human. And I think, you know, when you think about you know, whether it's just women and people of color, most people. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that it's like, and, and historically sort of a sci-fi or sort of cyborg sensibility way of thinking through other ways of imagining what the human might be have been much more emancipatory for most humans than a tradition that treats the human as self-evident, because then we get back to Vitruvian man. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really why the cyborg mentality, the cyborg approach of Haraway, Afrofuturism, Detroit techno, was so appealing to us, because these aren't techno-utopians, right? Like, if you're growing up in Detroit after deindustrialization, technology was part of what took your livelihood away, right? It's not, you're, you're not fetishizing technology. Um, if you're Donna Haraway thinking about the kind of military industrial complex, like these technologies that we use and love, computers, the internet, like this all came out of a need to kill a lot of people, right? So we don't need to fetishize the technology, but trying to locate the liberatory potential in it, right? Entering inside those contradictions, thinking of like kids in Detroit, like buying, you know, used drum machines at garage sales, right? That's a very inspiring image for us. I think it's a better way to relate to technology. And it's a way to think about how would we build a democratic technological future, right? How would we actually together as a, as a community, as a collective, as a society, co-produce a digital future instead of leaving it in the hands of a few billionaires? And that's why I think ultimately we don't want a pessimistic vision of technology. I feel like, you know, we're optimists because we're alive or whatever. But it's I think that as we've seen with these tech workers, with organizations like Tech Workers Coalition doing all this important political work, technology can also make new kinds of affiliation possible. You know, like it can create new kinds of solidarity among people who might not have imagined themselves as connected uh, previously. Now, most of the, the listeners of Team Human, and I guess it's partly my fault too, but um, we're, we keep thinking that, that humans have gotten so disconnected from 
terra firma, from the air we breathe, the oceans, from nature, that there's this strong urge, I mean, even in a, in a, in a postmodern way or modern way, to, you know, get organic and non-genetically modified. And it, do you see that as sort of as nostalgia or as a, kind of an, an appropriate desire for kind of acoustic, analog, connected, face-to-face, -face, eye contact, breathing together reality? I want to think about it because it's a really profound and important question. I, my knee-jerk is both. It's both. Right. It's a form of nostalgia that's hearkening back to older forms of communication and community that may also still have important roles to play for us. We were just visiting with some friends who are organizers with Tech Workers Coalition, and they were talking about the importance of face-to-face. -face. I remember being so moved when I was interviewing some of the Facebook cafeteria workers who unionized by their talking about the engineers they'd made friends with, uh, particularly around anxieties around family deportation and H-1B, but sort of people who they had daily rapport with that led to a, a recognition of a shared political interest. So these so, were like Latina uh, yeah, workers, yeah. Uh, Latina uh, custodial workers talking to like H-1B Indian yeah. programmers. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that's a kind of interaction where it's like, you know, they'd only meet face to face. I don't know. I think I'm in support of a sort of affection for materiality and in-person interaction framed by this real realization or knowledge that there's no outside. There's no outside the technological. There's no outside of global capitalism at the moment either, um, that it's always sort of already enmeshed. So what's our, what's our, our, what do you see as our political aim then? Is it to reform capitalism just to be better to people or is it to somehow break the thing and get to, you know, what, anarcho-syndicalism or socialism or something more fun? <laughs> oh, I'm all for breaking the thing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think global communism by 2030 is, is feasible. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> I think on this timetable. Especially if the G7 doesn't work out today. Yeah. Perfect. We'll see what happens. So in our piece, we actually end with a number of recommendations of where we think the, the political future lies, at least in the, in the context of the tech industry. I think we're very supportive of a rising wave of interest in antitrust. Uh, there's been a number of groups, the Open Markets Institute, there's a new campaign called Freedom from Facebook, which is demanding that the FTC take action to break Facebook up into Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus, uh, also to demand interoperability so that other people could build apps using that same protocol, similar to what um, happened with AOL Instant Messenger. So we're very supportive of that as, as a kind of short-term step. We think we need to encircle and weaken corporate power over the digital infrastructures that shape our lives. But thinking beyond that, we also see the need to develop publicly and cooperatively owned alternatives to those infrastructures. I think our position is that the common root of these problems is capitalism, is a profit-driven model of, of private ownership, you know, production for market. And we want to figure out, okay, just like with everything else, if you're coming from a socialist perspective, how do we decommodify and democratize more and more of our economy? So I think with tech, that could take a variety of forms. We're very interested in what's happening right now in Chattanooga, Tennessee, very successful municipal broadband service there. So publicly owned pipes, publicly owned internet infrastructure is very feasible. Um, it actually delivers much better service at lower cost. As for the platforms, there's a lot of interesting work around platform cooperativism, developing collective forms of governance. So I think these are promising paths. There's a lot of experimentation that's needed, but I think that's kind of our guiding goal is decommodification, democratization. 
Yeah, and there's sort of, I just want to shout out the data is labor people. It's funny as sort of a, a Marxist feminist. Uh, in my origins and orientation, I feel like on the model of actually pretty radical 70s Marxist feminism, wages for housework type stuff, we've had people saying, you know, wages for Facebook. And I think it's a very important provocation thinking, I mean, what's interesting is that in my view, the most productive way to approach this is not now let everyone own their data and like sell it on the free market because this data is social, like the value of the data is produced socially. My Facebook Messenger chat with you is only valuable in relation to lots of other people's Facebook Messenger chats. Uh, so I think any kind of data dividend or data is labor approach has to take that collective view. Um, but I think that that's also another really interesting uh, tendency and there are you know, people talking about that and working on it seriously. So I think that merits continued exploration. Right. So these are things that listeners can do, would be largely political. In other words, look at uh, how can employees get an ownership stake in the company that we're working in? How can we apply some kind of system of governance to what we're doing? How can I uh, connect uh, civically with uh, the town where I live and become part of uh, uh, the decisions that are made? At the same time, though, so many of us are still living in the this kind of consumerist, you know, understanding of satisfaction and relationship. And, you know, I, I worry about kids who were raised with in, in, in a metric system of, I don't mean the good Jimmy Carter's <laughs> metrics, I mean the metrics of likes and followers and uh, sort of fame quotients. It's sometimes hard to convey the value of these... Uh, of these tangibles, of the tangible, you know, it's almost like the tangibles lost its value, the materials lost its yeah. value. And I think, I mean, it's funny because I wrote my first book about the history of dating and people sometimes are like, why was that interesting to you? Or how does that link up with these things? But for me, I mean, what really motivated me to write that book is this question of like, how did we come to understand our most intimate lives as markets? Like that we're supposed to shop around and sell ourselves. And I think when we look at the ways that people game dating apps, um, that there's like this intense marketification of everyday life and intimate life. And I think... Dating is like the primal scene of that kind of neoliberalism. It's sort of like how we, how we start to learn it. But at these sites of social reproduction, at these sites of the social we do, we see kids learning that you should think about your friendships in terms of how many likes you can get or in terms of a certain kind of social currency that can accrue to you. And I think social media have like helped deeply entrench and naturalize that set of values and orientations and that we have to work to unlearn them. I mean, I think that it's ultimately destructive and maybe to the human maybe yeah. i'm an old-fashioned yeah. human that's despite it on though but i think there is something destructive about the way that a lot of these devices because of how they're set up to maximize profits because they're advertising company um inculcate this attitude towards our private lives it's interesting i think tech and information technology in particular is accelerating one of the central contradictions of capitalism, which is the contradiction between the socialization of production, where production doesn't just take place on an individual basis. Let's say in your individual home, you're creating a single article of clothing, but in fact is happening in these greater and greater agglomerations of human activity, right? So the move to the factory, and now we have not just the factory, but the global factory, global supply chains, right? So this deeper and deeper integration where wealth and capital Capitalism is truly socially created. 
unlike in pre-capitalist societies. But, but the contradiction... We joke about the sort of gig economy, the medieval aspects of the gig economy all the time, that it's like, you know, we now, a lot of the invention, like in early capitalism, this moment you're talking about it, and the invention of modernity is with like people leaving home to go work at some other place. It's like, we all work from home now <laughs> on these platforms. But, like the reprivatization of production or it's like becoming an individual. I don't know, there's something very neo-feudal about the freelance model. Sorry, so wealth has never been more socialized, right? So we might be working from home, but never before have so many people played a role in the production of wealth. And yet, ownership is still on this private model. So I think that's what we're seeing now, where if you think about Facebook, it has 2.2 billion users, right? Those people are all producing the data that creates a valuation of $550 billion for Facebook, right? That scale of socially created wealth is unprecedented in human history. And yet that network of 2.2 billion people is ruled by a single billionaire, right? Because Zuckerberg, because of his super voting shares, retains really sole control over that network. So I don't think we've ever seen the contradiction be that extreme between the scale of socially created wealth and private ownership. And I think tech is accelerating that contradiction. And as we know, capitalism grows through contradiction. So that could precipitate a crisis that forces a new phase of capitalism. Right. So like the power laws, the power law dynamics of digital technology, they accelerate capitalism into this sort of hyper-capitalism thing where all of a sudden you might get like mitosis or something, that something's going to just spin out of its, its framework. Totally, totally. And I, I would just say the, the one thing we have to keep in mind, right, is that all the moments in the past where this has happened, right, think of the Great Depression of the 1970s, like moments of crisis in capitalism, the tendency will always be to say, oh, capitalism is ending. It's, it's almost over. That's almost never the case, right? It just means that it's finding a new growth path. That's how it grows is through crisis. But if it, we don't want it to find a new growth path, do we? <laughs> no, I mean, I think we want to <laughs> we want to take advantage of the opportunity that crisis presents and say maybe we could use this as an opportunity to, to push it somewhere else, right? No, but you I don't mean Mars. Oh, I'm trying to go to Mars. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I feel like you would definitely go to Mars. I would thrive on but Mars. But that's what they're thinking. <laughs> oh, well, we've run out of room here. Let's expand to other planets. Well, Bezos says he has so much money, the only thing he can do is put it into space. So that's how he's using his surplus. Right. Did rather he than say like, that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rather that's than the only like, thing he can spend it on. <laughs> what about fixing the water? Yeah, or the Amazon warehouse workers who are passing out from exhaustion. But again, it's like, this is capitalism, right? Like these insane surpluses accumulate at the top, and they're just wasted. It's the most irrational system in human history. And it's deeply irrational as well as immoral. It is, though, because yeah. they're, they're saying that, oh, we're supposed to now, we're the, our worry as workers is supposed to be that our jobs are going to re be replaced by digital technology because everything's going so efficiently. If everything's going so efficiently, then why do we have to send kids into caves for rare earth metals in Africa? That doesn't make sense. Absolutely. And this is the core of Marx's critique of capitalism is, is not that it's immoral. Marx is not really concerned with morality. That's not his critique. His critique is that it's irrational. It's a huge waste of human potential. And it also doesn't do what it's describing, right? If you listen to how someone like Bezos, what his defense of capitalism would be, and then you look at the reality of how it operates and how someone like Bezos made all of that money, they don't match. There's an inconsistency there. I always remember there was in December, I believe, this story about the raw water startups, the guy who started Juicero, if you remember that company where they, you squeeze the yeah. juice out of the packet. After that, he was then given VC funding again to start a company that I think is literally called Raw Water. I could have the name wrong. It, in the article, it was in the New York Times by Nellie Bowles. It was about 
startups for selling untreated water because why would you want the government to interfere with your water and you know isn't it more natural and better to have (laughs) untreated water and I remember just reading this article and being like it's been three years since Flint has had clean water and VC is pouring money into you know creating sewage to be sold at buy right or whatever I mean I feel like you get these intense irrationalities um that also manifest as immoralities, I think, in that case. But sort of, you know, venture capital in search of the next hugely scalable idea can do really wacky, wacky things. It doesn't have to be actually scalable. It just has to appear scalable long enough for them to sell the business to someone else, <laughs> which may be where things go, you know. And if, if I guess if Facebook gets to every person on the planet, then what do they do? they got to find other planets or make people have more kids or something. Yeah, well, this is interesting. We get into this a little bit in our piece, but the Facebook model will run up against certain limits. And in some markets, probably already has, right? Like there's only so much more time you can add to the platform. And that's where we talked about how they might focus on data-rich interactions rather than just putting more time on the platform. So if, you, if you've if you seen um, Zuckerberg's rhetoric more recently, he says the platform is focusing on time well spent right, which than is to- total Tristan. time spent. Tristan Harris's company was called that for a while, his movement. Exactly. And what we speculate that that means, and which we've actually, not just speculation, seen that the company has done, is that they have reoriented the algorithms to prioritize personal interactions rather than consuming kind of so-called passive content, right? So instead of watching a viral video, they're encouraging you to leave a comment on your friend's post. Yeah, but those are more valuable to them. Exactly. 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 So that's really where we see this going is that in the business model, traditionally, you know, the, the friends we have who work at Facebook, the model has always been more engagement, more time spent on the platform. But that is running up against certain limits. So it's going to be about not necessarily total time spent, but making the time of the Facebook user more valuable to Facebook by prioritizing certain interactions. And I think to move back maybe toward like the beginning of our conversation or circle back, that's an example of how a humanist language is being co-opted for the purposes of like extensifying, rather, excuse me, intensifying data extraction. So Zuckerberg, I think it was in February when he first made that statement about a pivot to time well spent and wanting to encourage user health and well-being and not just addiction to the platform. Uh, And that is a language that can put a sort of friendly, fuzzy, conciliatory veneer on what is actually just an evolution of the business strategy towards more intensely harvesting data about personal interactions. Um, So I think that that's a place where the humane language has kind of, I mean, potentially makes it possible for tech leadership to co-opt the energies of this backlash moment. And do you think the backlash moment even though it's 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 being executed in a limited way by the humane technology people and, and all those ways we discussed, on a, on a broader level, does it give you hope for for averting the extinction of our species? Man, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah. I think our degree of, of kind of hope versus despair probably changes by the day. Usually one of us has to be hopeful and the we other one... We call it the apocalypse seesaw. The seesaw. That it's like one of yeah. us will be like... <laughs> yeah, someone's yeah. got to be hopeful. So I'm going to play the hopeful mode maybe okay. right now. I would say the tech backlash is is very encouraging. People are having a conversation about technology in this country that we really haven't had before. 
I think that's a real positive step. It's also happening within this broader context of a new awareness of um, labor movements. We've seen a lot of really exciting labor organizing. I mentioned the teachers in West Virginia and elsewhere. I think I've taken a lot of hope in that. We've seen a rise in kind of professional organizing, grad um, students, grad students uh, you know, digital media unions. There's a rising interest among young people in particular in left-wing politics and a more redistributive model. Um, so I think there are a lot of sources to draw hope from. The scale of what we're up against is immense, right? And anyone taking bets on it would bet against us for sure. I know I do sometimes. But I, I think it's, it's important when I am the hopeful one in the apocalypse seesaw, what I always say, which maybe makes more feel a little bit better, is that I'm grateful to be living in an era when there are so many sources of hope because it's, it's, it's very easy to imagine a world without them, right? If we weren't seeing these teacher strikes, if we weren't seeing this new interest in left-wing politics and socialism among young people, if we weren't seeing exciting developments elsewhere in the world around, uh, around these issues, it would be a lot worse. Yeah, I think we're just living in a moment when the consensus is sort of cracking or when the sort of the inconsistencies in, the cons in what had been a certain consensus, at least since the 90s, are becoming visible. And it's exciting to see a consensus that I think has not worked well for most humans, has not worked well for a lot of Americans, sort of the fissures in it are showing and people are trying to imagine new ways to organize society and new ways to live. And I think that that's, we try to hang on to the exciting feeling of, you know, whatever yeah. the next human iteration is going to be. It does feel like digital, I mean, digital has, has made this turn of the cycle happen so quickly in a single gener that we've all witnessed the entire circle from you know hope to exploitation in it didn't take a century to happen this day it wasn't like the industrial age or something where you know from the victorian uh, the, the the victoria exhibition all the way through to smokestacks was a long time this was just like bam so it's so apparent it's so visible like you're saying the fissures in the model and especially with you know for better and for worse the sort of engineering lean technology outlook allows people to look at the structure of capitalism and say, well, wait a minute, this isn't configured properly. You know, it's, it's, it's not configured to maximize the distribution of wealth to humans. Yeah, and I do think it's funny. I would think about this all the time when I was writing my dating book, but there is something about digital remediation that makes certain things about the social visible. Or like I was talking to a friend who teaches sociology, and he was like, you know, it used to take a while. It used to take a whole semester to get the kids, the freshmen on board for certain ideas about social construction um, or privilege or sort of structural inequality. And he's like, they get it. Right. <laughs> now the first day they get it. And I think there is something about the ways in which the structure of the internet like makes modes of affiliation visible and makes certain kinds of behaviors more self-conscious right. that can be productive. Yeah, totally. I think there's a lot of opportunity and I think we have to stay hopeful because a lot of people are putting a lot at risk to do really powerful things. We talked about the tech workers organizing against Project Maven and Google. It's very inspiring. And just and that's hopefully just a starting point. Think about how much more we can accomplish with that. And to find out more about your work, people, how do they get the magazine? So the magazine is Logic, and they can learn more about it at logicmag.io and read a bunch of articles there and also subscribe. We have three issues per year. Please subscribe. We're a nonprofit, and we spend over 60% of our budget paying writers and artists, and most of the rest of it goes to our indie publisher, <laughs> I think. So, yes, if you can, please subscribe. <laughs> we shall. Well, Team Human will be a subscriber. Thank you.
Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guests today were Moira Wegel and Ben Tarnoff of Logic Magazine. Moira's book, Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating, looks at the commodification of courtship under consumer-driven capitalism. Ben's articles in The Guardian have been disrupting tech industry gospel for the past decade. Together, they publish Logic Magazine, available at logicmag.io. Their recent piece in The Guardian, Why Silicon Valley Can't Fix Itself, is linked at teamhuman.fm. We'll be back in the basement media squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. We are entirely worker and listener supported. You can join the team by subscribing at Patreon. You can also help the show by reviewing Team Human on iTunes. We put a link in the episode description in your podcast player. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. This is Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.